0: girl How sweet the sound Saved a wretch like me I once was lost Now I'm found Blind but now I see
1: Chapter 5, starting at verse 1, we will find these words And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth. And taught them saying. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. Amen. We are endeavoring to continue in our series of lessons on Jesus the making, the mind, and the ministry. If we are to profess that we are followers of Jesus, then it is of most importance that we know who Jesus is. Not only do we know how he was made, but what his mind thinks and how his ministry operates. Therefore, that's why we have this series on the making, the mind, and the ministry of Jesus. Today, in our lesson, I want to speak with you for a few moments from the thought, Knowing the multitude knowing the multitude. In the backdrop of our scripture text for the day we have found that Jesus Christ has called his disciples. He has called them from places of profession and places of family to immediately follow him to embark on a mission that they have never seen before. As the mantra for Star Trek was that they boldly go where no man has gone before. Even though geographically and spatially they may have traveled these roads. They have never gone This way with Jesus. It is important to know that. When the believer. Is in the marketplace. When the believer is taking a road. There can be an unbeliever walking right beside you. But yet you are going places that they can't go. You are of a kingdom that's not of this world. When Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He said, you are right. He said, you are correct in saying so. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight for me and I would not be delivered to the Jews. And he continued to say that my kingdom is not of this realm. He told Pilate, he said, I tell you the truth. That my children hear the truth and they follow it. The believer in Jesus Christ, geographically and spatially, will cover ground that others outside of the faith can cover, but yet we're going places that they can't go. Amen. Amen. And so in our lesson for the day, I titled it, Knowing the Multitude. Somebody, an astute student of the Word of God today, might look at the text and see a, a, a resemblance to the beginning Of verse 1. And seeing the multitudes. Might say preacher. Why didn't you call your sermon. Seeing the multitudes. But yet you said. Knowing the multitude. A great example of being able to understand. The nuance of seeing. Might be illustrated with Sister Terry. When she looks at her children, yeah. says, McKenna, I see you. Mm-hmm. She's saying something on another level yeah. beyond just the words that's coming from her mouth. Well. Kensington, I see you. Mm-hmm. There's another level that's transcendent above just the definition of physical sight. What she's saying to her children is I see your motivation. I see your thoughts and I see the actions that you're ready to take. I see you. Jesus seeing the multitudes. He didn't just see them with his naked eye but he saw them in the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. Jesus says, I see you. So when we look at our text, we realize that seeing the multitudes is a loaded phrase. Starting out with the word seeing, But yet, realizing that it transcends into knowing. He was looking at the inward man. He was looking at their minds, and he knew what was on their hearts. So, in order to unpack seeing the multitudes, we must do a lot of contextual analysis today. Some might say today, Preacher, you you read verses 1 and you read verses 2, but you stopped at a colon, not a period. Hmm. I stopped there because what's coming after that is the king's great sermon. And before we embark on that great sermon called the Sermon on the Mounts, we need to spend a little time getting a proper context so that as we begin this journey through the Sermon of the Mount, we can understand how to connect the dots. Because a lot of times we read scripture disconnected. We see the Beatitudes as one thing, then we see all of the other sayings as another. But what we're going to find out in our studies is that they're all connected. It's all part of an agenda called the kingdom agenda. So first of all, we want to get a biblical context. We want to understand from a biblical context what is occurring here with Jesus coming in on this scene. We see that Jesus at this point in time, after healing... He has stopped and gone to the side of a mountain and sat. The text says, and he opened his mouth. What that means is that one who is getting ready to speak is getting ready to speak the very words of God. The opening of one's mouth, the prophets opened their mouth and began to speak thus saith the Lord. But Jesus didn't need a script. He didn't need Old Testament text because he could speak as one having authority because he is the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John chapter 1. And he became flesh and what dwelt among us as the only begotten full of grace and truth. So as he begins to see the multitudes in our biblical context, he is ushering in a new season. He's ushering in a new covenant that the Jewish people had never seen, heard, or understand before. They were there in the multitudes In a context of Old Testament scripture, the law, the blessings, and the cursings, it's instructive to realize that before Jesus opens up with new oracles from the Lord, the last message they heard was the message of John the Baptist. Talking to the religious leader saying, you brood of vipers, you snakes. He said, "Repent." for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the last words from Scripture come from Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 and God says, I will return your fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Hallelujah. Lest I smite thee with a curse. The words of God in closing ended With the potential for a curse. That God would have to restore the father to the children. And the children to the father. Because they were not representing him in their division. And God will not have representatives for him. That do not show his glory. And he said if you don't get back together. I'm going to restore you. But if you don't I will have to smite you. With a curse. God is serious about his representation in the earth. So as we look at this text, now here comes Jesus. The Old Testament introduced the problem through the law. It introduced the problem of sin and the amplification of it. That we are sinful creatures without hope. Because we have not the power to be righteous in the sight of God. And here comes Jesus, the problem through the law, but the answer through the Son. Here comes Jesus who introduces a new way. But he came in a way that wasn't like the Old Testament blessings and cursings. But he came with compassion. He came with mercy. He came with love. He came with words of blissfulness, words of of encouragement, words of a new hope. So in our text, we see in this context that seeing the multitudes, he could see them in all their facets. In any congregation, in any grouping of people, there is a complex society. Even though government officials and other leaders may try to stereotype a group to be all the same, all black people look alike, or all white people look alike, that is not true. In each one, there is a rainbow. But not just a rainbow from externals, but also internals. The way we think, the way we believe, what we think is important. And what we think is not important. So Jesus, knowing the multitude, he sees at least three or four things that the naked eye couldn't see. Mm -hmm. First of all, we want to look at the political context. He looks out there and Jesus understood that the multitudes were looking for a king politically they were looking for one who would come with political power and military power to overthrow the roman government they were looking for those those jews were looking for him to bring the kingdom and turn this world into his kingdom and then that they would have a nationalistic identity again that they would be sovereign without being under the oppression of another government But Jesus did not come to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus came to overthrow the law of sin. See, the people didn't realize because they were outwardly focused that the problem that they really had was not Rome, but the problem that was within. They were looking for answers on the outside When the answers that they needed were on the inside. At best, overthrowing the Roman government would have given them a short time of peace. But yet an eternity of irritation and distress. So Jesus, knowing the multitudes, saw past their desires to see their needs. And he's seen past our desires today, saints of God and seeing our needs. He looked in this political context and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came not to bring his kingdom and make it his kingdom this world, but to take those in this world and to put them in his kingdom. We are not walking as believers in this kingdom. Our steps do not come with the steps of our culture. Not the steps of our nation. Even the steps of our world. Because the kingdom that we serve is not of this world. Amen. Amen. And we must be careful. Especially in the time when we get ready to activate and to start moving as the arms and legs of the master. That we don't get confused between the agenda of the world and the agenda of God. So we look at our text and we realize that there's also a religious context. In the multitudes, there's all kinds of thoughts regarding religion. Not so much different than you or I. Some of us maybe Republicans, some Democrats. And that's political, but yet it also bleeds into our religious theology. Somebody might say, what? How is that? Those two don't mix. Well, I'm going to show you how that can very well be the case. The religious context of the multitudes There were three or four different sects that could be easily identified in the nation of Israel. First, we had the Pharisees, then the Sadducees. We also had the Essenes and the Zealots. And before we get to believing that those different groups were only ones outside of his inner circle, I will remind you that one of his disciples' name was Simon, and his name was Simon the Zealot. So even in the inner circle, even in those who have joined and become members of churches, there are still factions based on our own beliefs. But here Jesus comes right into this complex religious society with a message that did not line up with either one of them. And when we look at these four, let us not look at them as foreign because I believe if we look closely, we can find at least a little bit of ourselves. Amen. Amen. First we deal with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about law and tradition. We don't do it that way. This is how we do things. We obey the law. We follow the law. We rest on the Sabbath. We do no work. We Worship here, we sacrifice there. This is how we dress. This is how we speak. This is how we pray. The Pharisees, full of law and tradition. If we really be honest with ourselves, we can find a moment or a point of our own lives where we are Pharisaical. We do church a certain way. And when anybody disrupts that way, we get uncomfortable and sometimes even angry. Because we don't do it any other way. But Jesus is coming in a way that even breaks down their laws and traditions. Jesus is trying to get them to open their minds and realize that he's bigger than any law or any tradition. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. So for the saints of God today, we must be careful, saints, to not allow our tradition to become stumbling blocks for those who know nothing about it. We are living in a generation, in a culture that doesn't know church. There are so many unchurched that have never been to church. Even in America, there are generations now that have not even been to church. They don't know how to dress. They don't know what our liturgy is. They don't know our songs. They don't know where to sit. They don't even know that we don't have drinks and food in the sanctuary We've got to teach them, but we've got to teach them with love. Because people are going to be coming from the outside who are hurt, who are sensitive, who have already been marked and is already on the defensive. So we must be careful to bathe everything we say, everything we teach in compassion and love. None of them are going to care about what we know until first they know that we care. Amen. And so then we move on to the Sadducees. The Sadducees being the secularists. The here and now folk. The folk that say, you know what, we got our institutions of higher learning. We We have our civilization and our structures, our branches of government, our police. We have our military. We have philosophy from the Greeks. We have American philosophy. We have all these things to work with. And really and truly, I don't really believe all that much about the supernatural, the Sadducees. The practicums, they say. Well, we're being practical. I mean, you guys, because you can't find you're not as educated, then you have to resort to the word of God because you don't have much education. If you're out in the societies, you will hear these words. You will hear this kind of thinking. Is the reason why those people go to church and they believe in this unseen God is because they're uneducated. But if we can just get them into the higher levels of learning and allow them to matriculate through our hallowed halls of academia, then they will see the light too. That we don't need no supernatural. We got our philosophies. And even today, we, we get mixed up in that too because we live in a culture that continues to try to taint us. In the start of believing that something else is the answer that's temporal instead of the answer being in an eternal God. This morning in Bible, uh, in a Sunday school, we talked about the fact that some of us subscribe to the mantra of Nike, saying, "Let's just do it. Just do it." That, that athletics is the way to having better children that if we can just get them busy in football and basketball and soccer and gymnastics and maybe we can get our daughters into cheerleading, then they'll be better citizens. That they'll be not heathen. They won't be out stealing and destroying things and they won't be committing adultery and fornication. But I'm here to let you know that Activities will not fix that inward problem. They're trying to wash the flesh through education, and all they're doing is educating a mind that's against the things of God. But the world is trying to convince us that that's what we should be doing too. It's not as important to hear the Word of God and to learn the Word of God and to pray about our souls being converted. But let us get our bodies fit. Let us get out of the activities that do not allow our minds to be idle. But sin is ever present. And no matter how many athletic activities we are part of, no matter how many uh, educational programs we are part of, the flesh is still the flesh. Jesus comes into this religious context and says, uh-uh, that is not the way. Temporary fixes for an eternal problem. But then we move on to the Essenes. Lord have mercy. We move on to the Essenes, who are whom we would call the separatists. Well the ones that believe the answer to the problems of the world is to get away from the current society. To move away to remote places and rebuild our society to ourselves and let that society, if you will, go to hell in a handbasket. Now when we hear the radicalness of the Essenes, we might start to think about the Amish people. And we might say, yeah, they are more like the Essenes. But today I contend to you that it's just not the Amish. Because the society as well is starting to get control of them as well. That they want to start to dress more like the current society than be so peculiar and set apart. But I contend that there's a little essence in us. The people of God who say the answer is for us to be with one another and let them people be by themselves. Let them folks that's cussing and saying all kind of stuff. Let them who's drunk and, and their pants hanging down and all this other stuff going on that's not godly The answer is for us to come together and to separate from them. There's hard words, but there's truth in it that we have an aspect of Essenes as well. But here comes Jesus with a religious context that doesn't even fit that either. And then finally, the zealots. The zealots that believed that the answer was political upheaval. The answer to the world's problems was activism. Jealous being Jews, knowing of the law. But their minds were convinced that the answer to the problems was not purely the kingdom agenda, but we had to have a political agenda as well that we needed to get in place and we needed to, through political activism, overthrow the Roman government and then everything would be alright. We would reestablish our nationalistic position and that then Zion would be once again whole. But what they forgot as well is that political activism doesn't fit a sin sick soul. No matter how many legislative bills are passed, you cannot legislate morality. So morality has to have an answer some other kind of way. Here comes Jesus. Jesus, right into this context, is getting ready to preach a sermon which then will redirect the hearts and minds of the people to the answer to their problems after they have formatted and formulated all of the things that they thought would be the answer to the problems of the world, we find Jesus and the kingdom agenda. Well. So today we find that in all of our thinking, we all have a little bit of all of those sects, And Jesus is now coming to clear our heads. Well. In the following Sundays, we will begin to unpack this momentous sermon, this radical, paradigm-changing sermon that makes all the difference in the world. And he came knowing the multitudes. And I end right here for the saints of God. That as the disciples came close to him, his inner circle, as we come close to one another, that is not Enough. We must know the multitude. We must learn how to be culturalists in an ever-changing cultural society. If we're going to be the missionaries that God is calling us to be, we must know the culture that we're becoming missionaries into. The church culture in here is one culture, but the culture outside is another. You must know the people that you're going to be dealing with and you must know a little bit about the way they think. And so when we look at our complex society, we can take these different sects and find everybody in this world. Some way, somehow, some point, there is that issue with those who are in the world. So as we get ready to go outside, as we get ready to start integrating and start to connecting with those who know nothing about the things of Christ. We start as missionaries understanding the context. Now that we have the context in which Jesus is going to begin to preach, we must understand the context in which we must begin to minister. Understanding that they're not going to think like us. That they're not going to be, in some cases, readily available and willing to receive the things that we have to say. Some may become argumentative. Some may become somewhat brash. Some may become passive and shut down. But nevertheless, we are missionaries to this dying world. And that's why it's so important that we be prayerful, saints of God as we get ready to endeavor on this ministry, that the Holy Spirit goes before us. Because we need power. We need a power that's not like our own power. We need a power that transcends any power that you and I could ever muster. And that comes by the one that God has placed within us, the Holy Ghost. So we are praying that the Holy Ghost go before us and sanctify the pathways that we take so that the effectiveness of the Holy Ghost works as we move through these places. Because our heart and our minds should be about the kingdom agenda. It is an agenda that's worthwhile. It is an agenda that's more important than any other agenda that's on the earth. I heard a story of a man that... uh, was working in a watch shop. There was a customer that came up and knocked on the door, but he saw no cars on the outside. He saw no cars on the outside, and he looked around, and he said, but the sign says open, but there's no cars in the parking lot. So then, after a while, the man came to the door, and he opened the door, and the man... Went in. And the man said, Sir, when I drove up, I didn't see any cars in the parking lot. But yet your sign says open. The man says, Yes, because I live up there. He says, You live. Up there, and he said, Sure, I live up there, but I work down here. There's no need for me to have a car to get home because my home is up there. Saints of God, we don't need cars to get to the kingdom because we live up there. Even though you see you and me in this place. We're just down here working for a little while, but we live up there. And in light of that, we must remember that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. One Friday evening, they put nails in his hands and they put nails in his feet. But nobody took his life but he gave it freely. But they made that mistake when he was down here. They lifted him up and he was up there. And when he was up there he said I draw all men unto me. And Jesus is still drawing today through you and me if we would just let him have his way. He's still drawing little boys in little girls, still drawing men and women, still drawing drug addicts and prostitutes, still drawing whoremongers and thieves. He's still drawing today, and his name is still Jesus. But the story didn't end there, that he was on that cross from the third to the ninth hour. Shoot. tithes and our offering before we go in to the portion of service, amen, called the Lord's Supper, amen.